0: Welcome to the Emerging Revolutionary War podcast. Emerging Revolutionary War is a public history platform that explores all aspects of the Revolutionary War with up-and-coming historians and connects this history to the places where it actually occurred. We strive to make it fun and engaging for all audiences. We have a blog and website, EmergingRevolutionaryWar.org, where you can check out frequent blog posts and history articles by numerous historians. In addition to our blog, we are active on social media. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. We host an annual symposium and annual battlefield bus tours. We also have the Emerging Revolutionary War book series published by Savas Speedy Press. Right now, we have seven titles out with more on the way. These books offer a brief, readable, and illustrated narrative that includes self-guided tours of the battlefields, of many of the major campaigns of the revolution from South Carolina to Massachusetts, check them out wherever books are sold. We always offer speakers that can talk about a range of revolutionary war topics. And our historians have been featured in places such as C-SPAN, American history TV and Fox nation documentaries. Make emerging revolutionary war your home for the 250th anniversary of America's independence. This show is filmed live every other week on our Facebook page, So if you would like to watch these live and have an opportunity to engage with us, check us out every other Sunday night at 7 p.m. Eastern on our Facebook page. Enjoy the podcast.
1: Well, good evening, everybody. I'm Billy Griffith with Emerging Revolutionary War. I want to welcome you to our latest Rev War Revelry tonight, where we will be discussing author and historian Jack Kelly's brand new book, which just, just came out last week. Uh, God Save Benedict Arnold, The True Story of America's Most Hated Man. Uh, For those of you who aren't familiar with Jack, he has been on our show before about two years ago discussing his latest book then on the Battle of Valcour Island. But Jack Kelly is a journalist, novelist, and historian whose books include several Revolutionary War subjects such as Band of Giants, which received the DAR's History Award Medal, uh, as well as Valcour. He has contributed to national periodicals, including the Wall Street Journal, and is a New York Foundation for the Arts Fellow. He has appeared on the History Channel and has also interviewed on National Public Radio. He lives in New York's Hudson Valley. So the story of Benedict Arnold definitely right in your backyard. Uh, So I want to welcome you, Jack. I appreciate you coming back onto our show to discuss this new book, uh, which I did have the privilege of receiving an advanced reader's copy. Uh, as a Benedict Arnold nut. I think this is a very, very valuable addition to the historiography of this subject. Definitely one of the more accessible and readable uh, works on Arnold's life that are out there today. Uh, so before we get started and dive into Arnold, I want to talk to you a little bit about um, your experience with writing this book. Uh, what drew you to Benedict Arnold and inspired you to write this biography? Now, go going back uh, on your previous works, I know *Band of Giants*. You had a chapter in there about Valcor Island, which then turned into a book on Valcor. So, did this biography on Benedict Arnold kind of come out of your last project?
2: Yeah, I, I really felt, Billy, that I I needed to complete the story of Benedict Arnold, and I I had become more and more interested in uh, his career, um, in part just because he's one of the most complex and paradoxical figures of the founding era and, you know, maybe of American history in general. Uh, I also found that uh, when I talked to people about Benedict Arnold, it was a, a good portal into the early years of the war because he was involved in so many of the key um, operations uh, from 1775 through Saratoga in 1777. And if you just follow Benedict Arnold, you, you, you really get a picture that's that's cohesive because you're focusing on one person of those first three years of the war and and I think one other thing that occurs to me is he he's really a reflection in many ways of the times you know he his conflict his uh, um intense uh commitment to the cause and then uh having a change of heart reflects the experience of thousands of people in one way or another that wavered that were loyalists that went back and forth and the country as a whole that was divided about um, the the revolution and um arnold sort of embodied that that whole um feeling of the times uh in his career
1: so while writing this book um what were some of the challenges that you faced because you talk about you know arnold being such a Uh, complex character Uh, when it came to researching and writing. Was it the research part that was difficult or most more so trying to get into the mind of Arnold?
2: Well, yeah, I would say the latter Uh, it it, it, the what I conclusion that I came to. And I think uh, it is um, is really the what's behind Benedict Arnold is that he was a um, he was not an intellectual. He was a man of action. And I think particularly for um, academic uh, biographers is sometimes it's been difficult for them to get this idea that, that they don't understand someone who doesn't um, uh, think about his thinking, who doesn't uh, reason in the way that an intellectual would reason. He just does things. And that was really the epitome of of Arnold. And because of that, he comes across as being sort of opaque. He's not um, he's not somebody that ruminated about his own motives or his own uh, uh, rationale for anything. He just uh, went out and did it and did very well. And I always point out, you know, when, when he was in action, he was golden. He, he just had, seemed to have this intuition uh, to do the right thing at the right time when he was idle or when he would start to mull things over, then he would get in trouble and he uh, had a hard time getting along with people and he would uh, uh, develop animosity. Um, So the the times when he was not in action was the times that he, he tended to run into problems. Okay.
1: So let's get into the story of Arnold himself. You kind of touched upon his personality. Uh, but tell us a little bit about who he was and where he came from who was benedict arnold on
2: the eve of the revolutionary war well i my book is not a biography of arnold um but i did go back and i was drawn back into a little bit into his childhood and i think the two big factors of his childhood was his father became an alcoholic lost the family fortune the business went down the tubes and he was, as a boy, was sent out to um, get, you know, bring his father home when he was out laying drunk in the street or in a tavern. That's a very uh, searing experience for a boy, and I think shaped Benedict Arnold's uh, view of things and uh, his sensitivity to slights and his sense of honor. And the other thing was that his mother was a, a devout Calvinist. Uh, Benedict Arnold was not particularly religious in himself, but uh, he absorbed growing up this fatalistic view that she had, and and he saved the letters that uh, she sent to him, and she would say things like, uh, "Always be, always remember your, you could die at any moment. Keep death in your mind at all times," and she had lost, uh, I think, three or four children herself, so she wasn't, she knew what she was talking about. And I think he did uh, absorb that that lesson of um, uh, that death is something to be always expecting. And it probably served him well as a soldier that he was always ready to uh, risk his life, not, not uh, as fearful of, of, of risking his life, let's say, as somebody else might have been.
1: And I, I definitely agree with you there. Uh, you're talking about his father being an alcoholic, kind of sullying the family's name. And Arnold did, uh, I believe, definitely. Um, he, he kept that with him as he, he grew older and even through the revolution, he was always looking for a way to bring honor um, back to his family's name as well, um, to a uh, a fortune again that, that his father had, had wasted away too. Um, and with, with, in regard to his family, him and his, his sister, Hannah, I know, were extremely close. Uh, and she was by his side, essentially, all the way until uh, the end of his life, being that they were the only two who remained. Um, right. So now the war breaks out in 1775. Benedict Arnold is living up in New Haven, Connecticut, uh, running an apothecary. Uh, give us a little bit of an overview of the role that Arnold does play militarily uh, from the outbreak of the war to up to the Saratoga campaign.
2: Yeah, he um, immediately, he, he had formed a, a militia company in New Haven, a rather small company, a uh, little bit of training, not much. But the day after the news of Lexington and Concord arrived, uh, he put them in motion and he said, Look, we're going to leave right away. They marched as quickly as they could up to Cambridge, where the, the uh, Patriots were uh, besieging the British in Boston uh he met Joseph Warren there, and uh, I as I point out in the book it was a very important friendship they formed uh he was only there for a few days, but he and he and um Joseph Warren really hit it off and had a a, a meeting of minds about the war and they were both anxious to push the war forward, whereas a lot of other uh figures in the in the revolutionary movement even were uh still thinking in terms of reconciliation. So Warren sent uh, Benedict Arnold, uh, made him a colonel in the Massachusetts um, uh, militia, sent him out to uh, Western Massachusetts, and to to take control of Fort Ticonderoga, which is an idea that uh, that Arnold had. That what they needed in in Boston was heavy artillery, and that's w- that was the place they could get it because he knew having been to ticonderoga that there were a lot of cannon there there, there was a, a stockpile of cannon and so his original uh idea was to um was to capture ticonderoga and after he did that he and this is only three weeks after lexington concord he took over port ticonderoga with the help of the green Mountain boys uh, from uh, up in what became vermont and then he went up to Canada, captured a, a British warship that was the only British the only warship the British had on, uh, on Lake Champlain and um, took control of the lake. And that was crucial, crucial, crucial um, uh, m- maneuver in the early days of the war because it, it gave the uh, Patriots a protection from invasion from Canada, which is exactly what the British intended to do, uh, for the first two years of the war. And if I can get this, uh, there's Fort Ticonderoga. This, that's the reconstruction of Ticonderoga as it is today on the shore of Lake Champlain. And just to point out, this was the water corridor that went down Champlain, Lake George, down the Hudson River, all the way to New York. That was like a super highway in those days. And the British figure that if they could get control of that waterway, they would split the colonies in half and isolate New England and win the war. So the, the capture of Ticonderoga, which was the key obstacle to, to them doing that, um, was extremely important and also played into the the battle the following year uh, that uh, broke out on Lake Champlain. So I'm... Shall I continue on to yeah please do uh so um uh, there's a sort of an interlude when uh after they got control of Ticonderoga um Ar- Arnold went to back to Boston he met George Washington then uh and the uh, Patriots were uh launching le- an invasion of Canada so they they started Ticonderoga and the main uh branch went up and uh up the uh um, st lawrence river to quebec took montreal benedict Arnold was sent over to maine and went over the maine mountains and, and approached uh, and i haven't got a map of this but he approached uh from the south uh by leading a thousand man army over the maine mountains what extraordinary military expeditions of the Revolutionary War and really of any war. Um, They had a tremendous hardship getting over the mountains, but they did it. They got up there and uh, came close to taking Quebec, but not close enough. And uh, by the spring of uh, 1776, the British sent reinforcements over the uh, the uh, uh, Patriots were essentially shocked into a retreat that went all the way back down to Ticonderoga. And so they had to start afresh from there. Uh, in 1776, uh, they, there was an arms race because the uh, Patriots still controlled Lake Champlain and um, the, the British began building a war fleet up at St. John uh, on the Richelieu River that they could sail on onto the lake. And that, that arms race went on for uh most of the summer Benedict Arnold finally went up to the north end of uh of Lake Champlain and uh waited the British kept building more and more ships they wanted wanted to have overwhelming firepower to come down the lake and then finally Arnold pulled back um to Valcour Island which is right here uh just about a mile off the New York shore and um waited finally the British didn't come they didn't come down until October 11th so it was getting late already uh he fought them at Valcour Island which I go into of course in my book uh about Valcour uh a very very brutal battle went on for seven hours point blank cannon range and uh in fact I think I have a slide of that This was a contemporary map of the battle, and Arnold had the, the line, American line at anchor across to the top of the bay. It was, it was shallow water up here, so they couldn't escape that way. And um, they fought the British to a standstill, uh, which was quite remarkable against the Royal Navy. And then uh, during the night they slipped out in a kind of fairy tale escape through the through the British blockade went down farther down the lake uh, most of the American fleet was destroyed uh in the fighting but by the time the British did get their army down to Ticonderoga um it was too late and they they felt that they were afraid that they the lake would freeze and they wouldn't be able to get uh their supplies down they'd be trapped down there so they decided to go back and uh and uh try again in the spring and uh so the that campaign in 1776 was a complete success, and when I was writing the book, uh, I think I have a copy of of that book. Um, when I was writing the book, I was surprised at how little had been written about it, and um, uh, I even uh, I picked up David McCullough's book, which is a great book called 1776. It was about the war in 1776. Not a single mention of the Northern campaign in it. So. Um, that was uh, a huge achievement for Arnold um and uh he felt that he should get a a um, promotion and he didn't get a promotion that's really when the trouble started I don't say his treason traced to that but it was it was a factor that he uh didn't get the credit for Belcour that he thought that he should have
1: and I know um there were a lot of his rivals, whether in the Continental Army or in Congress, who actually uh, discredited his victory or what you could call it a, a pure victory, almost for the British, uh, a strategic victory, definitely for the Americans. Um, but they criticized him that he had lost the American fleet.
2: Yeah, that was uh, uh... His idea was, why have a fleet if you're not going to use the fleet? And their idea was, you've got to save the fleet by by retreating, really. And um, he felt that he was right, and they felt that they were right. Uh, there was, uh, the, the Most of the people, including George Washington, who knew what was going on, uh, did praise Arnold. And Washington definitely thought that Arnold should have gotten the, the promotion that he... Um, that he thought that he should be promoted major general Um, and instead he saw that junior officers were being promoted over his head Mm -hmm. and he went to he went down to uh, to uh, Philadelphia with the intention of resigning his commission in the Continental Army and did turn in his resignation and that was an odd coincidence that uh that same day New, the news reached uh, Philadelphia that Fort Ticonderoga had fallen to General John Burgoyne, and the and the um, the invasion that the British had always been planning uh, down. Now that the American fleet was cleared off of ship Lake Champlain, Burgoyne easily took uh, Ticonderoga and was on his way towards towards Albany and Arnold immediately threw in uh jumped on a horse forgot about the the uh the resignation and went up and joined uh, uh general uh, Gates who was in command ratio Gates uh and there there ensued the Battle of Saratoga
1: so before we do jump into Saratoga uh that spring in 1776 Arnold is involved in probably one of the most uh, forgotten actions of the revolution up in uh, Connecticut uh but the Danbury raid and the the battle at Ridgefield which i think is one of his finest moments.
2: Yeah, that was that was um i think uh, telling about many of his qualities. Uh he he had gone he was home on leave in uh, New Haven and uh he was um uh news arrived in New Haven that the uh, british had landed just a little ways uh west on the coast uh at uh, what's now westport it was um the what was then in uh, norwalk i think and uh they had gone inland about 25 miles to danbury which was a major uh supply depot not only for connecticut but also uh, supplied the uh, army over on the hudson river and uh, they didn't have enough militia. Uh, he, he he rode down there with uh, General uh, David Wooster, who was the, he- the general of the Connecticut militia. But they just didn't have enough men uh, on hand, so they followed the British along. The British did burn and destroy everything in, uh, in uh, Danbury. And I always point out, you know, that this is in April of 1777. Well, at the end of the year, when the, the American troops marched into uh, after the 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 actions at Philadelphia um and they went out to Valley Forge and they were marching through the snow with no shoes on uh thousands and thousands of pairs of shoes were destroyed at Danbury so uh it was not a it was not a minor uh loss but uh the Wooster and Arnold together decided that Wooster would take a small group of the militia that they did have and follow along after the British and harass them. The British decided to, to go west and then come down a different route than they thought up to, to avoid running into the uh, the Patriot forces and uh Arnold cut across and and formed a uh uh they put up a barricade across the road at Ridgefield, which is just a little village there, and he organized these people. Ridgefield, the Ridgefield militia had formed uh, only a few days earlier. So you can imagine they hardly had a chance to have a drill. And uh, here they were facing some crack British troops as well as a a large force of loyalists uh, under uh, General Tryon. And um, With a celebrity general at their head which benedict arnold by that point was very famous and he um, organized them and steadied them and they gave a pretty good uh, 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 defense against the british the british had cannon and uh many more troops they had about 1500 troops at uh, ridgefield and they were able to flank them and push them back but uh, it was a it was a uh, a very costly operation, it turned out, even though the British had destroyed a lot of uh, supplies, it was a costly operation for them in terms of casualties. And they didn't try that again, the, the, the inland raids. So um, the improvisation, uh, fighting with what he had, you know, because even the militia they had were from all different uh, uh, regiments and units. Uh, but to organize a defense with them and, and have it fairly to be, come off fairly successfully, uh, was a great achievement. And at the time it was considered a big deal. Uh, uh, uh John Adams said that, um, Benedict Arnold deserved a, a gold medal. Congress should strike a gold medal for him for, for that. Uh, they, uh, they never did, but they, they did then promote him to major general, um, and uh, he, he was still dissatisfied because the junior officers that have been appointed over his head were still his superiors. so uh he continued to gripe about, about that but uh it was definitely a, an achievement uh, on the way to the and action at, at, at uh Saratoga and I know during that
1: fight at Ridgefield uh, Arnold has kind of a Hollywood moment uh, as the British line is is closing into uh, him and his men's ranks uh his horse is shot out from underneath him and he's he's pinned on the ground as a British soldier comes at him with a bayonet to get him to surrender or to stab him and uh when asked to surrender he paraphrasing I forget what he exactly says, but it says basically go to hell and and shoots the British soldier dead uh calmly gets up, throws his saddle on his back, and walks his way out of Ridgefield. <laughs> Right. Yeah, that's
2: uh, I started my writing career as a novelist, so I like those little novelistic uh, moments, <laughs> whether they're true or not is uh, a matter of opinion. But, if it didn't uh, happen,
1: it should have. Yeah,
2: exactly.
1: <laughs> that's right. You can't let the facts get in the way of a good story. <laughs> right. But uh, now moving on into the summer of 1777, uh, other than his eventual treason, Arnold is best remembered for the part he did play at the Battles of Saratoga. Uh, so please tell us about his role in the battle and also his relationship uh, to General Horatio Gates, which has really been shrouded in in myth over the past centuries. Uh, is Arnold the true hero of the Battle of Saratoga?
2: Yeah, well, I, um, General Burgoyne was was had a lot of momentum as he came down, but uh, he he was getting farther and farther from his you know his supply line was stretching thinner and thinner, and uh, Arnold and Gates together uh decided to to take the stand at Bemis Heights or just below the village of Saratoga on the high ground that um overlooked the road that went down the west side of the of the Hudson and that Burgoyne would have to fight them in order to get past and uh Burgoyne uh in both the battles there were two battles fought uh, they're collectively the battle of Saratoga in the in the first battle, uh in both battles, we're going tried to go around the left end of the American okay. lines, and, and Gates was very big on building fortifications and had had quite a uh Casusco uh, to help design the the fort and the and the and the ditches and the stockades that they put up. So they had a pretty strong uh wall to fight from behind, and then uh the British thought they would uh flanked them, uh, 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 along around the American left side and Benedict Arnold was in command of the left division and, and therefore was at the center of both battles on September 19th and October 7th uh, in the first battle he really fought were going to a standstill uh and inflicted pretty heavy casualties uh, but the British held the field of battle and threw up uh, field fortifications. In the second battle, he pretty decisively defeated Burgoyne out in the field and then led a, personally led a charge into the field fortifications, broke through, put Burgoyne in the position where he had to do what he said he would never do, which was to retreat. And that was the point at which Arnold was severely wounded. Uh, but in, in the process, uh, he he made it inevitable that 10 days later going would have to surrender his entire army to gates the the relation with uh, with uh, horatio gates was it's really fascinating because they'd worked together uh gates had been the commander of ticonderoga the, the year before and uh, arnold was the man the, sort of running the nautical defenses of ticonderoga that year and so now uh, Gates had, had replaced uh, Philip Schuyler as the overall commander in the North, and um, Arnold tried to get along with him. He was friendly with Schuyler, and, and of course Schuyler hated Gates because he'd been pushed aside by Gates, and Gates didn't like Schuyler either. So was a little bit in the middle, and I think between that was an important factor uh, Arnold had hired some of uh, uh, the aides of General Schuyler um, to be his aides, and they hated Gates. So they tried to always be uh, finding fault with uh, General Gates and telling our, uh, Benedict Arnold, you know, trying to push him to uh, towards a, an animosity with Gates. Um, and that's what happened, and, and at a certain point, after the first battle uh, Arnold felt that he didn't get the credit from Gates what Gates reported to Congress what had happened he didn't mention Arnold and Arnold was key in that first battle so he went raging down to Gates's uh, headquarters and uh, they had a, a very hot argument and the letters flew back and forth uh written by the same aides who were trying to to foment the uh, the the uh animosity between the two men. And Wilkinson uh, uh, was, uh, and I think he was a colonel at that time, uh, James Wilkinson, was an aide to General Gates and was doing pretty much the same thing in uh, whispering in Gates's ear that, you know, Arnold was a, 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 a somebody should, should uh, avoid or try to uh, take down. Um, the dispute lived on long after it was over because uh, so much of it was written and, and and written by the aides, in particular, who were biased for one side or the other. But the overall um, effect of it was very minimal, and uh, it it was used uh, after um, Arnold committed treason. the The history was. Uh, biographers and historians tried to twist the history around to take credit away from Arnold for everything he he did. And that's that's something that has gone on and on. It it has improved greatly in the last you know, 30, 40 years uh, as the more recent biography, much more balanced. But um, this dispute with Gates uh, led some historians to say, well, Arnold never was on the battlefield. He wasn't really in command. He, uh, Gates had tried to send him home. Uh, all those things were a matter of interpretation. So uh, they could say, well, that w- that was uh, uh, a way of taking away credit from Arnold for a really great victory. Uh, my own conclusion, and there's, there has been uh, um, some new evidence that's come come to light in the last few years of uh, a letter that was found that somewhat contradicted the this old-fashioned story of how uh Ar- Arnold was not that much involved in the victory at Saratoga and I think that I think that it was very clear that he was that I also give a lot of credit to to General uh Gates because it, strategically he did the right things he wore uh uh Burgoyne out uh Burgoyne was got desperately short of fodder for his horses. And once you you know once you no longer have fodder and there was nowhere to get it from, um you, you start to lose your mobility because your horses are dropping dead. And uh he was uh, under a tremendous amount of pressure. And I think part of the uh, dispute between Gates and Arnold was also uh, a matter of stress I mean they were these are two guys under tremendous stress uh the whole the whole uh Revolution is balancing on this battle and this everybody you know now calls it the turning point of the war uh so um but when it came to the fighting uh you know I think again Arnold did the right thing and and uh and uh, had the uh uh success and deserve credit for the success and, and that seems to be the the general consensus now more and more historians and uh the folks at the battlefield uh the Saratoga Battlefield uh are really coming more and more to the con- conclusion that uh Benedict Arnold was the essential man in that very very essential battle and Gates was a great contributor to it but uh Sooner or later, somebody's got to do the fighting and that was better than
1: And I think even uh, in the wake of Saratoga, after returning to um, Great Britain, Burgoyne himself credited the American victory to uh, to Arnold rather than yeah. to Gates. Yeah, yeah. That's very, very high praise coming from uh, the defeated general there. So Arnold is severely wounded uh, at Saratoga. For those of you um, who have not been to Saratoga uh, National Battlefield. You can visit that spot right at the Bremen Redoubt. Um, and at that approximate location is a late 19th century monument referred to as the Boot Monument. Uh, clearly to Arnold on the back, dedicated to the most brilliant soldier in the Continental Army, uh, but does not actually have his name listed anywhere on it. One of the cooler um, American Revolution monuments uh, on any battlefield, in my opinion. Now, going forward now, uh, unable to return to the field because of his wound, Arnold is going to be appointed the military governor of Philadelphia uh, following the British evacuation of the city in 1778. And this is where things start to really unravel for him. Tell us a little bit about his time spent in Philly, some of the people he meets, what he experiences there. Yeah, the, the
2: um, because of the wound, the, the, the wound was very severe uh in the sense that uh it the bullet hit a bone and shattered the bone they think it was probably a shin bone almost every case a wound like that they, the doctor would have amputated he didn't want it amputated he suffered through it uh, but he was pretty disabled for a long time and 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 walked with a limp for the rest of his life uh probably in a lot of pain uh, throughout and uh so he wasn't able to go back into into action uh, uh, in, in the Continental Army. George Washington, in what I think a lot of historians think, was one of his few uh, mistakes he made in, in, in personnel decisions, decided that uh, Philadelphia would be a good place for Arnold to do administrative work uh, between the, uh, the evacuation of the city by the British and when the civilian government got back up and running. So he was the sort of uh, czar of uh, Philadelphia for uh, a number of months, and um, it was he'd been in action at that point, continuously, uh, almost continuously since 1775. He'd taken that one break in, uh in the spring of 77, uh, very hard action, a lot of hardship that he'd gone through, a lot of fighting he thought it was a good time to take a breather and go back to his the type of life he was accustomed to because he was a rich man before the war and he liked to he liked the uh life of the uh uh, comfortable and uh, uh, rich man's life and he tried to start it up while he was in Philadelphia and, and also make some money uh which was uh it was a little fuzzy as to what was ethical in those days i mean uh, uh nathaniel green who was certainly a, a a highly ethical person and yet he, he made uh, quite a bit of money as as being uh the, uh the quartermaster general during the time he held that position uh by trading with his own company so arnold had some deals going on and uh Favor, the favorite that favored himself um and he tended to associate with the wealthy people in town and they had been most of them had leaned towards uh, the loyalists a lot of them were n- supposedly neutral but they were happy to get along with the British when the British were there and with the British left they would have to get along with the Americans but uh the, the, they uh gave rise to the uh, idea that uh, Arnold was a little bit too sympathetic to the to the people who were the enemies of America and uh, that went on until charges were uh, finally uh, raised against him for various uh, misdeeds and uh he had to go, go before a court martial, uh, and eventually it was reprimanded by Washington. very very, uh feeble rep- reprimand, but uh, he had used some wagons that were owned by the state of Pennsylvania, uh, and um, th- uh, for his own purposes, and so they gave him a slap and the wrist for that. Uh, but it was, uh, it was. Uh, uh, an experience that may have begun to shape his thinking more than uh, uh you know leaning more towards the uh the, the loyalist point of view and of course at the same time he had begun to uh, court Peggy Shippen and her family the Shippen family was quite influential they weren't uh they weren't flat out loyalists, but they were they leaned towards the loyalists. They were conservatives. They leaned towards the loyalist point of view. Uh, So. um, He eventually uh, got her father's agreement that he could marry her. She was 19 he was, uh, I think Arnold was 36 at that time. And uh, he. uh, uh, Married her in 1779 and by uh, somewhat of a coincidence i think uh that was just about the time they first made contact with the british and started seriously exploring the possibility of going over
1: so in your opinion and it's heavily debated there's no real hard evidence out there that peggy um had pushed him towards treason but definitely a lot of circumstantial evidence uh do you think that she was probably um, you can term it as like the straw that broke the camel's back in
2: the end uh no i don't i th- i think that um, everything everything i know about arnold you, know, you sort of sum it up as well as just the the relationship that men and women had in those days it's very unlikely that she had enough uh force of personality yeah. to influence him uh except that she did facilitate so uh was it a reason i don't think so but was it a did it make it easier for him um it it did because she served as a go-between during part of the plot uh and 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 didn't uh i don't think as far as we know we don't really know did not uh try to dissuade him and, would, and probably supported him in going over to the British. Well, we
1: do know that she had been acquainted with uh, a young British officer who, by the time of Arnold's treason, is serving as, yep, there he is, um, as Henry Clinton's uh, Chief Intelligence Officer, uh, John Andre, and they um, began that relationship during the British occupation um, one of the more famous sketches of Peggy ship and chipping of her likeness was actually done by Andre. Uh, so tell us a little bit about Andre and, and as communications now open up, um, lead us down the road towards ultimate treason.
2: Well, it, it was actually, um, this was about 15 months before the actual, actual, uh, plot came to fruition. Uh, Arnold got in touch with um, with the British first sent a messenger who was a loyalist from Philadelphia. But there was quite a bit of back and forth from Philadelphia to New York. Uh, People had various pretexts where they had to go to Philadelphia for business or. And so if they could get a pass from a high American officer and of course Benedict Arnold could give anybody a pass, uh, they could go through the lines and uh, and. visit back and forth so he sent uh, a um, a loyalist that he knew that he trusted uh, to make contact and he got a meeting with uh, Andre in New York and Andre was flabbergasted and uh you, you know he, he said that you know there's a high-ranking uh, officer that wants to cooperate with uh, General Clinton and uh his name is Benedict Arnold was like unbelievable as later would the, the shock of the country uh andre was shocked but the opportunity for andre was this could make his career and make his life you know if he was able to to maneuver arnold uh into the british camp and the the thing you have to remember is that this is all in the context of like agents and double agents it gets so people who are great uh interested in the this world of spies uh trust could this guy have been or arnold himself have been leading the british on to uh think that there was somebody on their side and there was and they, he wasn't really willing to come over and so and the same thing with the british you know and so it was uh it was very tricky. There's a lot of uh, letters went back and forth uh, in invisible ink, and some of the letters that uh, Peggy wrote to Andre uh, that made it through the lines, and, Ar- and Arnold would write it in invisible ink between the lines. So it was a very a lot of a lot of uh, cloak and dagger sort of stuff uh, until the final uh, fruition of the uh, plot, and Arnold um, had gotten. In, in command of and his goal was what he wanted was to give the British as as much as he could uh and to charge them you know to that that would uh, induce them to give the, the him a, a pretty hefty payment so he he got in command of the lower Hudson Valley and was in charge of Fort at West Point and uh, that was the the uh goal was to hand over West Point to the British and uh, that plot came to fruition in September of 1780. So he'd been uh quite a f- uh, more than a year uh going back and forth he did give them a little bit of information but never he wasn't actively involved enough to be up on all the uh, American movements because he would He was sort of uh mostly on leave from the army because it was this wound so he did find out that the uh, they were gonna land, uh, French were gonna land up in Rhode Island, but the word didn't get to the, he tried to get, get the word to the British to, to show them he was in good faith, but it uh, didn't get, get to them quickly enough to do anything about it.
1: So for those of our um, listeners who uh, only know West Point as the location of the United States Military Academy, why was West Point strategically such a big deal during the revolution? Uh, the, yeah, that
2: was uh, the, uh, the, the real uh, main defense of the Hudson River. Uh, there's a, the, the Hudson River takes a like an S-turn almost there, and uh, it uh, has high ground on the west side, uh, and, and there's uh, hills on the east side as well. And so it's a great place to set up some cannon and stop any uh, attempt to come up the Hudson River and they put it they even forged a very heavy chain that they had floating across the uh the river as well uh so to take uh, west point at that point would would have um would have given the british a, a pretty good advantage in the war and uh as it turned out and this was not really part of arnold's original thinking because the, page, the 1779 was sort of a it was like a bye year in the war. There was not all that much went on in 79, but in, in 1780, the British were on the move again. and had the momentum and they taken Charleston. They defeated Gates down in the, in the, the Battle of uh, Camden in, in South Carolina. And uh, the, the things were looking bad for the Patriots. They were out of money. Congress just couldn't raise any more money. Uh, they were tired of fighting. And so um, to lose West Point, it's hard to say whether it would have been absolutely decisive, but it it could very well have tipped the scale over to at least the Patriots saying, well, I guess we have to now make a deal. And uh, that was what was at stake. So it was was a pretty big uh, fair that, uh, that Arnold would try to do that.
1: So as you said the plot to turn over West Point to the British does in the end fail tell us a little bit about the events surrounding the discovery of this plan
2: Well I always uh, uh say you know uh William Shakespeare wrote plays about history but history also creates its dramas uh, in the unfolding of Arnold's plot in 1780 uh was really it was almost like something that a playwright would have dreamed up uh he met with Andre um in uh neutral ground on a Thursday night uh, on the west side of the Hudson River they made the plan of how the British could take over the fort he gave him a map that Arnold had drawn out a map for him and list of troop deployments and, and information that he needed and he told Andre put the put that those documents in his boot uh Andre uh, and, and Benedict Arnold then went back to his uh headquarters which was on the east side opposite West uh, West Point and Andre was supposed to catch a British ship and go back uh, but the British ship was scared away by um, American artillery fire so he had to go over in the ferry. He had uh, uh, somebody guiding him, the, a friend of uh, Arnold. He went over on the ferry to the east side of the Hudson and, and started riding by horseback down the east side on a Saturday morning. And uh, he he was very uh, excited because he had this great uh, intelligence coup that was gonna make make his career. Uh, but he was also very nervous because between the American lines up around Peekskill and the uh, British lines down close to New York was no man's land. And he um, uh, the, it was patrolled by both militiamen from both sides. And sure enough, as he was riding down, uh, three militiamen jumped out of the bushes, stopped him, pointed muskets at him. Uh, Andre made the mistake of saying, "I hope you're of our party," and so the militiaman simply said, "Oh yeah, what party is that?" And then he had a guess. So Andre guessed. He said, uh, "The lower party," which would, would have been in New York, down British, down in New York. And the the militiaman said, "We're Americans. Get down!" And they uh, they this is this is a little map of that area. He got down as far as Terrytown from uh, Peekskill and uh, then was captured by these three militiamen. They found the documents. They he offered them bribes. They wouldn't take it. Uh, they took him to their commander, Colonel Jameson. Colonel Jameson, I think a little slow on the uptake, immediately wrote a letter to his commanding officer, Benedict Arnold. So um, he then thought about it he 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 realized this is arnold's handwriting on these documents so he decided to send the the um uh, the documents to george washington george washington was on his way by monday morning he was coming back from a meeting with french officers in connecticut he was on, on his way to have breakfast with benedict arnold at his headquarters uh, and then they were going to inspect west point so um both couriers were headed towards Arnold's house. One of them got the first one got there with the first message. Arnold's immediately left and uh, jumped in his boat and started southward. And then uh, Washington uh, arrived. Arnold wasn't there. They went over. He went over with his entourage to West Point. Uh, no Arnold. They hadn't seen him in two days. So he's like uh, Washington started get very. Uh, uh, I have an ominous feeling about this whole thing went back to uh, uh Arnold's headquarters and the second courier arrived gave him the papers and 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 revealed the plot at that point uh Washington he said who can we trust now because and it wasn't a rhetorical question it was like he didn't know how far the plot went uh but he sent the mar- army in motion and um and uh I always point out the, this is the picture you're talking about. It's actually drawn by Major Andre of Arnold's wife. And she threw a hysterical fit. All the officers thought she was uh, so shocked by his uh, treason. It turned out she was just uh, putting on an act to help him escape. So he escaped down to the, got Bird ship. And uh, that was the last of Arnold's participation in the American cause. So,
1: Arnold himself does afterwards release a kind of a, a public uh, explanation of why he decided to turn coat. Um, tell us what some of the reasons were uh, that well, he listed.
2: He, yeah, he, he, uh, only a few days after he, his plot was discovered, he, he sent a letter he called it Letter to the Inhabitants of America and he said uh, he had a number of reasons so he didn't like the french alliance he said that that was uh, that was no good he he'd grown up hating the french he he didn't like independence he said he never would have supported independence uh he thought congress was a bunch of scoundrels and so he listed this it was like a laundry list of um what was really uh uh typical loyalist propaganda points uh this was published it was uh in the papers but uh it turned out it was it, that Arnold didn't even write the letter it was written for him supposedly from his uh his uh notes or something uh by a um uh, loyalist uh, lawyer down in New York City um so and it all of it smacked more of excuses rather than some some reason that would have really drove him to to commit treason uh it was just um, well this if i have to have a reason this is what i'm going to say and uh the real reason that he um uh went over to the british is really unknown and i would say you know some say it was the money some say it was his wife some say it was the uh, he was disgruntled with congress but none of those reasons really to me at least carry enough weight to to push him to do what he did and i think. He is such an enigma uh, that it's really, you know, to be honest about it, it's just impossible to to pin it down and say, well, this is why he did it. Uh, and I sometimes wonder if he himself knew why he did it. You know, he was just not a, he was not a type of person that was that introspective. And also he never thought he committed treason. He, he always said, I just, I did what was right. When I rebelled against the king, I did what was right right when I tried to stop the war that was no longer had any purpose uh, by going over to the British. And I thought that was the best way to do it. And he never had remorse or regrets the rest of his life.
1: All right. Well, I have just a few more questions before we wrap this up tonight. Uh, What was the immediate American response to Arnold's treason?
2: Well, it was a shock. I would have to i'd say uh he was burned in effigy he was it was like he, he it's hard to it's hard to really understand it what a celebrity he was I and mean, it was not at the age of celebrity but he was as big a celebrity as they got in that time and in, and in, in, in getting his name in the papers and uh, being so heroic in so many battles that he rivaled george washington as far as just name recognition and for him to to be the one that committed treason was uh I mean the country was absolutely shocked and uh and I think that set him on the the, the path of infamy that he never you know he never got off of because it was just uh, it seemed like such a hateful thing that he'd done and 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 and, and such a black evil uh act that uh, his reputation uh, never got back in balance really they forget, people forgot about all the good things he'd done and all the heroic things he'd done so uh that that was uh, the the general reaction they they burned them in effigy in many cities
1: so arnold's story in the revolutionary war doesn't end there with his treason he does don the uh scarlet coat of a british general he be- receives a brigadier general commission uh he fights up there down in virginia up in connecticut and does very well Uh, from the British perspective. Uh, Definitely carried over his military success from the American side to the British side uh, until he finally goes back to London. Uh, He serves as kind of a consultant to King George III uh, on military policy and strategy. And then the war ends. What becomes of Arnold after hostilities cease?
2: Well, he and and Peggy went with him over to England uh, after Yorktown they he he tried to set up in business again uh he did he he did not receive a warm welcome and the thing that he really wanted was to get into active duty in the military service over there and they wouldn't have that particularly the the officers in the british army didn't want him uh, they didn't like the fact that he was a traitor and they didn't like the fact that he would killed so many british soldiers uh, you know during his fighting career for the americans so he, he, and Peggy went to Canada for about six years, um, that he, he got into business there, didn't get along with people there, came back to England, uh, started pretty much a regular trading business down to the West Indies and did that for the rest of his life. As long as he could, uh, he died always wish that he could be back in the action and I think he, he was he loved action so much uh that any idleness uh, that you know was difficult for him so to wrap
1: things up here um beside your book uh do you have any favorites or recommendations when it comes to primary or secondary sources uh that you think our readers would enjoy
2: Uh, Well, regarding Benedict Arnold, um, I think that uh, several of the recent biographies, um, Stephen Brumwell wrote a biography uh, uh, maybe five years ago, I think uh, was a good biography. Jim Martin's, uh, James Kirby Martin, who wrote uh, a biography back in the 90s, uh, was really the most, uh, you know, I think it really uh, set the Arnold story on the path to being being a much more balanced story. And he's always tried to uh, emphasize both aspects of uh, Benedict Arnold. Um, uh, as far as um, primary sources, um, uh, it's hard. I can't think of anything in particular that you Arnold did not leave a lot behind in terms of records. You know, he didn't write uh, extensive letters, uh, he didn't certainly didn't keep a journal. Uh, and so, the the written documents about his their are they're essentially pertaining to his life are pretty limited. All
1: right. Well, uh, I want to thank you so much, Jack, for joining us tonight and uh, discussing your book, which can I highly recommend for any of you who tuned in. Uh, to go pick it up. And I want to thank you, everybody who did tune in tonight um, for for listening in. I do have some house cleaning stuff to do. Uh, I want everyone to um, join us via our Facebook page starting next Thursday on December fourteenth. Uh, the ERW crew is going to be traveling up to Boston for the Boston Tea Party. 250th commemoration, we'll be posting videos from historic sites throughout Boston, focusing on the events surrounding December 16th, 1773. Uh, We will be interviewing historians, authors, and museum professionals from all over the city. Uh, We will also bring you live to the Destruction of the Tea reenactment on Saturday. Uh, And of course, we'll visit some surprise historic sites uh, along the way. Uh, But with the holidays coming up, our next Rev War is actually going to be on Sunday, January 7th, 2024, at 7 p.m. Our guest will be Tom Hand of Americana Corner, who will be discussing his new book, An American Triumph, America's Founding Era Through the Eyes of Benjamin Franklin, George Washington, and John Adams. I want to thank you again, Jack, for being here tonight, and thanks everyone for tuning in. I hope you all enjoy the rest of your Sunday evening.
2: Okay, thank you, Billy.